0: in your bibles john chapter thirteen in john chapter thirteen during the american revolution a man in civilian clothes rode past a group of soldiers that were repairing a small defensive barrier their leader was shouting and barking orders at them but he wasn't making any attempt to help them at all and the rider on the horse looked at the gentleman and he said um, He said, why are you not helping? And and the leader, who was barking all the orders, looked at the rider and said, Sir, I am a corporal. The stranger apologized, dismounted, and proceeded to help the exhausted soldiers. It just needed just one more person to help. Well, the job is now done. And he turned to the corporal and said, Mr. Corporal, next time you have a job like this and not enough men to do it, Go to your commander-in-chief, and I will come and help you again. And you guessed it, the man was none other than George Washington. I'm glad the young people are with us here today. I think they will appreciate uh, the title of this message today probably more than most of us as adults will. Today I'm preaching on the subject, Swollen Heads and Stinky Feet. That's probably an unusual title, but I think you're going to see where we're going with the message here today, and don't let the title throw you. Again, I'm glad our young people are in the time with us here today, because I'm going to begin by asking this question, what do you want to be when you grow up? One of these days we're going to grow up. Just think about this, one day Mr. Chris is going to grow up. What's he want to be when he grows up? You remember asking yourself that question or somebody asking you that many, many years ago? What do you want to be when you grow up? Somebody tell me what you want to be when you grow up. Say it out loud. I want to be a teacher. That's a great ambition. Instructing and molding these little minds of mush and making them into something worth something one day. That's great. How many teachers we have in here? Any teachers? My wife's a teacher. What else do you want to be? What do you want to be when you grow up? What's that? FBI, FBI agent. Secret agent man back there. That's going to be awesome. Yeah. What else? A recognizable cre- Now, seriously, at four years old, five years old, were you working on that? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, that would have been great, but yeah. What do you want to be when you grow up? A mother else? A writer? Okay. Cowboy, yeah. There's a lot of things. When I was young, and you'll realize you'll recognize this, I got a lot of my ideas on what I wanted to be from pop culture, and it'll kind of put it in perspective a little bit. I wanted to be a policeman. Some of you may recall the old show, Adam 12. And I wanted to be a policeman. Or, here's another one. I thought maybe I could be a fireman and work as a paramedic. In fact, I used to put on a blue shirt. I would get on my bicycle. I would put a tackle box on the back of my bicycle. I would sit in my garage and go, eh, oh, eh. And then I'd go riding off to go rescue somebody and hoping that I'd be the next Johnny Gage or Roy DeSoto. Some of you may not even remember those days. I had another thing. I was a huge superhero fan. When I was a kid, I would put a towel in the back of my shirt, a red towel, and I would run around the house and I would jump off the couch and try to fly. In fact, I bruised my tailbone one time trying to do a flip. I thought I could do that off of the couch. And I remember going with a friend of mine one time, and I got him to get a flashlight and put behind me. And if I held the towel just right like this behind me, it looked like the bat signal. I wanted to be a superhero. As got a little older, I thought, man, I would love to be a hero like Steve Austin, a man barely alive. I didn't want to have to go through the accident that he went through, but he was the bionic man, and I'd go off with my friends and stare like this and go, do 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 like I was seeing off in the distance, <laughs> and I would run in slow motion around the house. As I got a little bit older, I began to get a little bit of... Interested in sports, and I wanted to be a professional basketball player, and my hero at the time was a man they called Dr. J, and he could fly all over the place and jump and dunk, and he was fancy. He was Michael Jordan before Michael Jordan, LeBron James before LeBron James, and and so I wanted to be like Dr. J. In fact, when I went off to college, I got for my society jersey. I had the number six put on the front of it and the name doctor written on the back, and I wore that around because of the way I operated. That was my thought anyway. I wanted to be like Pete Rose, the big red machine when I was a a you ten know, year old boy, boy, they were going to the World Series and I was so excited about the opportunity and I played little league baseball and I would I would get in the batter's box and I would crouch way down like he did and I loved the Reds. I, I mean I would get real tight. You remember how Pete Rose used to do that? Some of you remember that. I would pop my elbow like Joe Morgan used to do. I never got a hit, but <laughs> I wanted to be like those guys. Now this is probably one of the funniest things I wanted to be. I thought it'd be really cool to ride on the back of a truck. So there was a time somebody says, what do you want to be when you grow up? I actually said, I want to be a garbage man. What do you want to be when you grow up? We'll we'll think about all kinds of different things. Somebody says a teacher. Somebody is talking about a cowboy. Somebody's talking about a writer. Maybe I want to be a doctor, a lawyer. I want to make the world a better place. I want to be president one day. I want to be all these things, but we would never say, I just want to be a servant. want to be a servant and yet that's what we're called upon to be leonard bernstein the famous conductor said it's easy to get someone to play first violin a second violinist is tough to find you know the first violinist they get the solos the first violinist is known as the concert master the first violinist gets to stand and take a bow at the end of the symphony but it's the second violinist that's tough to find what would you do if you knew you were going to die a violent death in about 12 hours you look at the gospel of john you've got about half the book that is dedicated to just a few hours that take place right here on the night before his crucifixion and then the crucifixion time and so much of this is dedicated to it, and we pick up our reading here in chapter uh, this this chapter that we're looking at here today, and as we're looking at it, it is one of those passages that really humbles us right up front. We probably, if we knew we were going to die, would not be making this the priority, and yet the lessons Jesus is going to teach are demonstrating something that is of extreme importance. You know, last words are important words. And so he introduces us to this subject that is very, very key. Our, our, our story begins with these men here arriving in small groups, maybe in twos or threes. I can just imagine it. They're laughing. They're carrying on. They don't realize what's happening. These these Galilean fishermen, these farmers, and a couple of would be warriors. These disciples of Jesus who had spent the last couple of years with the one that they called their master teacher. And they're going to enter the upper room. And as they enter, do you remember what they had been doing? As they're going in, they're having a discussion that they'd had several times. And I'm not sure that it was actually an incredible argument that they're just going back and forth. It may have been in jest, but behind every little jesting mark or something like that, there's a little bit of truth that's at play. The Bible says in Luke 22 that a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest they're arguing over who's the greatest think about this this is something that they had argued about before they'd done this several occasions Peter says well you know I'm the one that walked on water myself yeah you're the one that sank too John says, well I'm the one that I'm the disciple who Jesus loved yeah you're the one that writes about that all the time (laughs) you know Andrew says, but I'm the one that's always bringing people to Christ. Every time we read of Andrew, that's what he's doing. James says, well, I left a very famous, you know, profitable business that I would have inherited, and they're just going on and on and on. But Jesus enters the room, and all of a sudden, there's this dramatic pause. Suddenly, something's different, I mean, drastically different. They'd been carrying on, they'd been animated just a few moments ago, and now all of a sudden there's this awkward moment of silence. Everybody's like, what's happening here? This this discomfort. Nobody said anything, but every single one of them felt it. You see, the roads that they'd been traveling on weren't paved roads. In fact, paved roads were basically unheard of back in that time. Most of the roads weren't much more than just dirt trails covered with thick layers of Middle Eastern dust. Normally, in the culture of, culture of the day, a servant would be available to wash the feet of the guest as they arrive for dinner. And normally, this would happen. The guests would take off their shoes or their sandals. This is common all over the world. In fact, uh, the United States is probably one of the few places in the world where people don't take off their shoes when they enter into, into a place like this, but uh, they, they would come in, the servant would take a a basin and a towel and a pitcher of water and they would kneel down and they would wash the feet of each of the guests as they entered to make for a pleasant dinner experience But remember this was a borrowed room and there was no servant that was available now under normal circumstances the culture would dictate that one of the people that were coming in would have volunteered to serve but at this moment again which one of us is the greatest? Who's going to stoop to that level? No one budges, and so there's just this awkward moment. And I have no idea how long it was. It may have only been, you know, four or five seconds, but it would have seemed like an eternity. Incredibly awkward moment. You enter a dinner, and you don't have your feet washed. It's kind of like walking into a restaurant in your underwear. <laughs> you know, that, that would have been incredible. But, but no one does anything. But they're all thinking, somebody ought to wash our feet. And after a moment or two, Jesus just walks past them over to the low-lying table in the center of the room. Remember the oriental custom of the day was, to sit, was it to sit around the table with big high-back chairs like you and I do. In other words, Da Vinci got it wrong in the painting. You know that. It's kind of neat that they all posed on one side of the table, all sitting up straight like that. Wasn't that cool? You know? no he got it wrong there normally they would be around a low table there would be pillows as little couches around the table and each person as they came in would approach the table the cups and plates everything would have been set there the food would have been prepared they're they're coming in and they would go take their place almost like 13 spokes on a wheel that are going off and if you think about it they're kind of lying there the feet of the person the the dirty feet of the person that's sitting next to you is just probably a little bit too close Think about the smell as you entered into that room. If you've ever been to a Middle Eastern restaurant, you know it's an explosion of aroma, just all the spices. and Oh, and they're preparing for a feast this evening. The herbs, the fresh bread, and all of that mixing with the odor of the guys with the swollen heads and stinky feet. They sit through an entire Passover meal, which... Is quite the ceremony, if you think about this. Verse 2 tells us that the supper being ended. Then in verse 4, Jesus, without saying anything, rises from the table, and he quietly pulls off his outer robe, he grabs the basin of the water and the towel, and then he stoops down to wash his disciples' feet. He's working his way around the room, and each disciple doesn't know what to say. He'd pour water over each person's feet, and then allow it to be caught in the basin below, and then he would wipe the man's feet with a towel. And as he finishes with a, Andrew, he moves on to Simon Peter. Okay, Peter's struggling. He's having a tough time here. We, we all know who Peter is. And Peter says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus reached out and grabbed one of Peter's feet, and Peter, Peter pulls it back. And Jesus reaches out and he, he says, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you're going to understand. And Peter again recoils his feet from Jesus and he begs him and he's resisting. He says, no, you'll never wash my feet. And then Jesus seeing Peter's pride, I, I would say Peter's, Peter's pride disguised as humility. We're often like that, aren't we? His pride disguises his humility. Jesus peers right into that fisherman's eyes and he says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And this shocked Peter. And as he no doubt gazed into the eyes of Jesus, he knew he's serious. <laughs> he's serious about this. And then Peter cries out, then Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus reaches over, grabs Peter's heel, and he continues with the task of washing Peter's feet. He refers to him to the custom of the day of bathing before going to a banquet so that upon arrival, only the guest's feet, the dusty from the journey, needed to be washed. And Jesus says, a person who's had a bath, he says it kind of matter-of-factly, looking up from his chore, he says, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And quickly finishing his work... He added another point, and you are clean, though not every one of you, referring, of course, to, I wonder who, to Judas, who in just a moment, Jesus is going to wash even his feet. Having gotten their attention, he walks back to the pillow and he says, if you look with me at verse 12, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? Do you understand what has just happened? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should be just, Uh, do just as I have done to you. Now remember, who is he addressing here? He's addressing the disciples. Remember the ones with the swollen heads, the ones who had the stinky feet. Jesus places himself in incredible contrast to the disciples. They're all looking for the place of honor and recognition. Jesus is looking to stoop down and take the role of a servant And as he speaks these words, each man's recalling, I'm sure, shamefully, what had just been happening earlier as they were arguing over each one who was going to be the greatest. But he gives a lesson which we would call the paradox of the Christian life, something that he has taught on other occasions, and that is the way up is down. The way forward is backward. If you want to be first in God's kingdom, then you're going to have to be last in this one. That's a lesson that we all need to learn. That's a lesson that's tough for us to learn. In human nature, we think exactly the opposite. We want to be the first in line. had with me just a few weeks ago our missionary Billy Judson, who's in India. India, he's back there doing well. I talked to him this week. and uh, When I visited India, I was amazed at this country where the caste system still haunts that place where everybody is trying to position themselves for uh, who could be first and who could be the big wig, who can be the big dog, who's the alpha out of this group. We were going into the country and there in the airport, and the guy that I was with from America, this, this guy that was with me, he's actually a guy that's run for Senate. This guy that's run for Congress, he was with me. We're going into the country, and, the, and, and we have these little Indian guys coming up and just pushing us and shoving us. And I, you know, I, I told you I like sports. I played basketball. I know how to box out, and I learned how to do that. I had to if I was going to get through the line there, because everybody wanted to be at the front of the line. And that's human nature. In our text today, we're going to see Jesus himself demonstrating true humility. And he asked another question of his disciples. He says, do you understand what I've done to you? Do you understand? Today, we want to walk out of here understanding four lessons in genuine or true humility. What does this look like? Let's pray before we get into this. Father, thank you for this morning. We do ask your blessing on our time Lord, I want to communicate truth in a way today that is so practical, Lord, that we walk out of here not wanting to be first, but wanting to be last. We walk out of here not wanting to be the top, but wanting to be at the bottom. And then we walk out of here not wanting, not wanting to exalt ourselves, but to let you exalt us as we find our rightful place as servants. Following the example of our Savior Jesus Christ. Lord, as we sang earlier, that this would be our desire to be like Jesus. That we see, Lord, that this is our vision and our focus is to be like Him. Lord, bless our time here tonight, uh, this morning, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. First point we need to understand ourselves. Four lessons in genuine humility. first thing is we need to understand ourselves. Notice verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world of the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now there's some debate as to when they took the Passover. Did they take it before this time? Did they celebrate that before a meal here? Was it all part of the same thing? that's not really the argument or the point of this message what it is is his his focus that it's right here the night before his crucifixion he here he is and he's loving them to the end notice verse two during supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of judas iscariot simon's son to betray him Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. No, notice several things from this. And the first thing is here that Jesus knew. We need to understand ourselves jesus knew several things verse one he knew where he came from jesus had come from the glories of heaven he had left glory he had left the best best place in the universe and what did he do he came to the earth he left the fellowship of the best relationship that had existed in the universe but notice he did that deliberately philippians 2 verses 6-7 through seven, who though he was in the form of god did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Notice that word form, I've highlighted it there, because the word form literally carries with it the idea of authentic. He was the authentic God. In in authenticity, Jesus is God, but he took upon himself, emptied himself by taking on what? authentic servanthood jesus became the authentic servant and this is an incredible he knew where he had come from but notice also he knew who he was he was the son of god this was absolutely confirmed to him when john baptized him Uh, Matthew 3, verse 17, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He knew who he was as the son of God. He knows that he's on a mission through this whole thing, that there was a a purpose behind this. So he not only knew where he came from, he knew who he was, he knew where he was going. And he knew what was about to happen. And again, we ask, what would you do if you knew you were going to die a violent death? And he says, this is what's important for them to be left with. This is important for them to understand. Philippians 2 verse 8, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on our cross, or or literally he's going to die a cross death. And this would not need any explanation to the person in the first century reading this. This was the cruelest and most vile of deaths imaginable. And Jesus was heading to this. Today we see the cross as a nice little ornament that somebody puts on a necklace. Or they put on the top of a Christmas tree. Or they, you know, they're aimed at something. We've got this cross that we're going to hang on our wall somewhere. That'd be like hanging an electric chair. It was the instrument of death, and he was going to die the most cruel death imaginable. And he knew all of that, and in spite of that, not only did Jesus know, but Jesus loved. He loved. And I have to wonder at the scene when Jesus looked at his disciples. He knew he was going to the cross. He knew what was about to happen. He knew what this evening entailed, and these guys just never get it. They don't get it. How many times do I have to tell you? He doesn't say that. He doesn't act like... He just loved them, kept instructing them on this, and He chose to love them in spite of the circumstances there. Not only do we see Jesus' example of humility in that He knew Himself, notice another thing that He knew is He... Understood, we need to understand our place. Not only need to understand ourselves, we need to understand our place. John 13, verse 4. The Bible says, He rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, then he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, said, What I'm doing, do, you don't understand now, but afterward, afterward you will understand. I remember reading a story a while back when Christian Herder was governor of Massachusetts. He was running hard for a second term in office. And one day after a busy morning, he was out chasing votes. He had not had any lunch, and he arrived at the church barbecue. It was late afternoon. Herder was famished. And as he moved down the serving line, he held out his plate to the woman serving chicken. And she put a piece of ch- on his plate and then turned to the next person in line. It, Governor Herter said, excuse me, do you mind if I have another piece of chicken? And she said, sorry, I'm supposed to give one piece of chicken to each person. He said, but I'm starved. Sorry, the woman said, only one to a customer. Governor Herder was modest, he was an unassuming man, but he decided that this time he would throw his weight around a little bit. She, he said, do you know who I am? I'm the governor of this state. And she said, do you know who I am? I'm the lady in charge of the chicken. Move along, mister. And here was a guy that was put in his place. Notice Jesus stooped in verses 4 through 5. Late... Dave Thomas, the founder of Wendy's Hamburger Chain, was known for his humble service within the multi-billion dollar empire. I read his autobiography many years ago called Dave's Way. man of great character, as I read about that. When asked what made him so successful, he replied, my MBA, but he didn't mean a graduate degree in business education. Notice his quote here. He says, I got my MBA long before my GED. I even have a photograph of me in my MBA graduation outfit, a knee-length work apron, I guarantee you that I'm the only founder among America's big companies whose picture in the corporate annual report shows him wielding a mop and a plastic bucket. That wasn't a gag. It was a case of leading by example. At Wendy's, MBA doesn't mean master of business administration. It means mop bucket attitude. It's how we define satisfying the customer through cleanliness, quality food, friendly service, and atmosphere. Wendy's has changed a lot. I wish Dave was still around. (laughs) My former ministry where I pastored, we had a man in our church that was the owner-operator of several Chick-fil-A's, and it wasn't unusual to see him pushing the mop bucket. Chick-fil-A, again, was named America's favorite restaurant just recently within the past couple weeks, and I I read that statistic, and there's a reason for that. Here you have Jesus, the Lord of the universe. Jesus, the Lord of the universe. And if anyone didn't have to humble himself to wash the feet of these farmers and fishermen, he didn't, but because he knew he was the Lord of the universe, he knew he was not diminished by showing his love and humble service, he took up the towel in the basin and he stooped to serve. And Jesus, think about this, he dared to stoop to a level that the disciples were willing to go. And he washes their feet. A menial task reserved for servants. They're jockeying for position around the table. And the person who's the greatest in the room is down on his knees there washing the dirty, grimy feet. Think about this. Jesus washed 24 stinky feet. He was washing 12 proud hearts that day. I think it must have stunned them. I imagine as they were arguing, he kind of does this. It's kind of like they. Thomas and his mop bucket attitude and and Jesus takes off his outer garment, strips down to his under, he grabs a towel, he goes over to Thomas and he kneels, he takes his foot, begins to walk. All this commotion, all the bickering, all the arguments disappear. They're speechless. Until Peter speaks up, and now Jesus challenges them, and as Jesus gets to Peter, he literally responds, literally in the Greek, what Peter is saying is, absolutely never will you wash my feet for eternity. (laughs) That's literally what he's saying. Uh, You will by no means ever wash my feet, and there's no way ever you're going to do this, but Jesus is going to wash his feet because Jesus challenges his pride and what a character peter is for in the same instance think about this he's proclaiming his unworthiness to be washed here he is suggesting that jesus doesn't know what's best that somehow jesus is making a mistake by what he's doing (laughs) so much for humility right i think peter had a problem that a lot of us have and the problem is that seeing things the way that god sees things and but jesus does what he does in these kind of circumstances as he put peter in his place and sometimes you and i just need to be put in our place and sometimes it's not that jesus is in front of us doing this but sometimes our circumstances it doesn't take long i mean have you ever been had jesus put you in your right place the third lesson is we need to understand our need Verses 8-11, through Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. Notice here how Jesus demonstrated. He demonstrated their need to be clean, and Peter said that he didn't need Jesus to wash anything, but now he changes his tune. Jesus can wash everything, but Jesus has a different idea in mind, and he turns this into a lesson about spiritual truth. He says, Peter, all of you need your sins washed. Their need was spiritual cleansing, not physical cleansing. They're arguing and bickering, and they're showing that their hearts are dirty, but Jesus is saying really... There's one here that really is dirty. And that was G- Judas, of course. And then Jesus loved in verse 11. Think about this betrayal is in the air. Judas is going to stab him in the back, and he's going to sell out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus knows, and he knows it quite well. Yet it was never too late for Judas. He could have turned around his own betrayal, but Jesus keeps loving him. And the Bible says he loved them to the end, and that means he loved Judas to the end. And Imagine this. Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him, and he still stoops down and he washes Judas's feet. I just want to say, wow. Wow. What humility. The fourth thing we need to understand is we need to understand our responsibility. Notice verse 12 here. And again, we looked at this. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and received his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you're right, for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you... An example that you also should do as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now notice in this passage we see in verse 12, Jesus questions them. Do you understand what I've done to you? This is, this is probably one of the most important questions we need to ask ourselves as we're reading our Bibles is what is Jesus doing What is God doing? What is he doing in this text? What is he doing in my heart and life? What is he showing me? Uh, What is the purpose behind all of this? And Jesus is going to go a step farther as we see here. He instructs them in verses 13 through 17. Now I want to point out three things, and that is the main meaning that we see here. In other words, there's an obvious meaning to those disciples that are sitting in front of him. Look at verse 14. He says here, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. In other words, the next time this happens, wash one another's feet. And no doubt. That was to be taken literally. They're going to enter a room. like. In fact, they're probably going to enter this room again. They're going to get back to this same occasion where they're going to come in, all of them except Judas, of course. And we see this in Acts chapter 2. They're in the upper room on Pentecost. And we don't read it uh, if they followed through or not, but, but we don't read that they did not So we really can assume that somebody took to heart what was being taught in this passage. And I'd like to think that they did. Several years later, around A.D. 60 to 65, Peter, you remember the one who refused to let Jesus wash his feet? Peter is going to write a letter, and he's writing this letter to the persecuted church which had been scattered throughout Asia Minor, and he's instructing them. And and Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 5. This is the same guy. He says, clothe yourselves All of you with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And and what a picture there, this idea of clothing yourselves. It's almost as if in his mind he's picturing Jesus wrapping himself with the apron clothe yourselves with humility. And that sounds a whole lot like the lesson that Jesus had taught them. So there's a very clear, literal, main meaning to this, and that is the idea that when you get together, that you literally ought to wash one another's feet. I don't think this is saying this is an ordinance. The Ordinances deal with the death of Christ. That's the baptism, the Lord's Supper, celebrations of the crucifixion, what Jesus has done for us. This is, however, I do think we ought to wash one another's feet... I think everybody ought to wash their feet. I think it would be a great object lesson for us to do that. I don't think it's an ordinance of this, but what an example that we see literally in this. Now, there's another thing, and I'm going to call this the metaphorical meaning. or In other words, we need to properly understand the pattern or the example that Jesus has given to us as we look beyond his actions and we're looking at his heart. There's a broader application to his exhortation. In other words, when we read the Bible, we don't only need to look for, uh, look at it exactly literally for here but what is the principle that is being taught what is he trying to give to us and this is very important when we study the bible for example none of us are going to ever be called upon to rebuild the walls of a city i mean has god spoken to you and told you to do that does that mean we should just throw the book of Nehemiah out? Or are there principles in that book that are practical for us and that we need to learn and to apply? So there is a principial meaning that we're looking for here. There's a metaphorical meaning. And what is the principle here? And that is simply serve others. Serve others. Jesus said in Matthew 20, the disciples had been arguing again one time, and he says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. So the principle that is at play here is to be a servant. And he's going to go further than this because he's not just saying you ought to be willing to serve. Some of you say, well, I'm willing to serve. I'm willing to serve in children's church. Well, maybe we're all willing to serve in children's church. But the question is, who is serving in children's church, right? I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to be a servant. Well, actions speak a whole lot louder than our words. Jesus says here, I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. And the question is not, are you willing? But the question is, are you doing? Many of you know the name William Booth. That's not Chris, by the way. I told him I was putting up a slide of him because I saw that cool beard there. Years ago, the Salvation Army was holding an international convention, and the founder, General William Booth, could not attend because of a physical weakness. He was aged in ill health and nearly blind, so he cabled his convention message to them. This was the fax machine before the fax or the email before the email. Uh, The text message before the text. So they, they get this message and the delegates gather to hear the message from General Booth. The moderator of the convention stood to read the telegram message. And it said, Dear Delegates, Others. That was his entire message. Others. Signed, General Booth. One word sermon. But he preached more in that sermon because he backed it up with his life. Others. May this be our plea. So there's a main meaning, there's an obvious meaning, there is a metaphorical meaning, but then I want us to finally look at this. And this is what I'm going to call the missing meaning, or the meaning that all too often we have missed. Maybe we didn't really think about it very often. Look down at verse 12, and I want you to notice something in this passage. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments... And resumed his place. No telling how many times I've read this and I didn't see it. Does that strike you with a, a little bit of a question? What is significant about that? When he had washed their feet and then put on his outer garments and resumed his place. There were 12 men who had their feet washed that day. How many men were in the room that day? There were 13. Now it appears from this that Jesus went back to the table with dirty feet, doesn't it? Who washed Jesus' feet? You say, well, what's significant about that? Well, remember when Jesus gave the parable of the talents, he talked about feeding the hungry, clothing the poor, visiting those who are sick and in prison. Remember what he said? Matthew 25, verse 40, he said, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Matthew 25, verse 45, Truly I say to you, as you did not not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. I think there's a missing meaning in this passage, something that sometimes we overlook, but I do think it's an application for us to examine here, something for us to think about. When we're not serving others like we're supposed to, we're not serving Jesus like we're supposed to. In a very real sense, when we're not jumping in, I'm not saying when you're not willing, I'm saying when you're not doing. When we're not doing these things in a very real sense, in a figurative sense or maybe a metaphorical sense or i don't know jesus is walking back to the table with dirty feet so we literally wash the feet of others and then we look for the principles of this but we need to be looking in a very real way and how can we be serving others because when we're serving others we're serving Jesus. A while back I read a blog post titled, titled Five Simple Ways to Serve Others. It's from a site called I, and it's part of the Our Daily Bread Ministries, and it stands for Why Am I Here, mainly addressed at younger folks, but It gives five simple ways that we can serve others. I was thinking about we could take time today and say, how can I serve others? And every single one of us could come up with a list of probably 20, 30, 40, 50 ways we can be serving other people around here. Here's five simple, very practical ways. It's just serve where needed. Churches are strapped for volunteers today. I served in pastoral ministry for 25 years. We often had to beg for workers. We had to put in we had a bulletin every week, and we were we were putting need for nursery workers we needed children 's workers we needed people to help clean and set up and It was just a constant thing just just look around you there are needs everywhere. I read on Wednesday night at, at our at our midweek prayer time and bible study time just just this past Wednesday about a recent survey that was taken among five thousand pastors the question was asked, what's the greatest needs in your church? 98% of them listed as number one or number two, to get members involved in ministry. Are there any needs in this church? Serve where needed. Number two, brighten someone's day. What are some ways we can brighten someone's day? Have you ever had it paid forward for you? Have you ever gone through the drive through and the person in front of you paid for your meal? Or the person at the grocery store? I, I've actually been a recipient of that and I've actually tried to do that at different times to try to treat somebody somewhere along the way. Maybe just brighten somebody's day with a phone call. Nowadays, a, a text message, a letter... Brighten someone's day by just taking a moment to look them in the eye. To listen. We were talking about in Sunday school how can we be an encouragement? And I was sitting there thinking, you know, one of the things that we need to do is we need to just listen to people, be willing to listen. A lot of times, and I'm guilty of it, I'm on a mission. I, I I'm, I'm busy. And, and sometimes there's a first-time guest in the back, and I want to go see them, and I have good motives on what I'm doing, but I'm looking right beyond the people that are in front of me right now. I remember a guy hearing a story, I think it was John Maxwell, who told a story about a man walked into, he was a new staff guy at his church. He walks into the lobby. This is like his first or second day of work, and, and the, the pastoral staff is standing out in the lobby, and they've got coffee. They're standing around. They're joking and carrying on. This guy walks in. He sees them and just kind of nods at them, and he walks right back to his office real busy. He trying to get caught up. He's got so much to do. He's new on the job. Maxwell walks in and confronts this guy and he says to him, what are you doing? The guy says, I, I've got so much ministry I got to do right now. And Maxwell looks at him and he says, that's the ministry. That's the ministry. Our ministry's not pushing paper. Our ministry's people. Find ways that we can brighten someone's day. What think about this if you're sitting around waiting for somebody to brighten your day it's going to be a miserable day isn't it if we're all doing that let's say every single one of us in here we're just sitting here thinking about how can somebody brighten my day but what happens if we say okay i'm going to find three people today i'm going to make an intentional effort to try to do something special to brighten their day All of a sudden, we've just exponentially been blessed as a church. All of a sudden, just because we decided to stoop like Jesus did. Intentionally pray with someone. I didn't say pray for someone, but I said pray with someone. When you're listening to somebody and they're opening up their hearts and their problems, or they're sharing their needs, or even their celebrations, let's take advantage of those opportunities. Some of the... Most special moments that I've ever had are, are like with a congregation is somebody that's telling me a need and I say, okay, brother, let's pray right now. Right here in the lobby or right over here in the corner, let's pull aside and let me pray for this right now. Or we hear great news. Hey, we've been trying to get pregnant for years and we just got word that this, and we're so excited. You can imagine all the anxiety that's going with them. Hey, let's pray real quick. God, thank you so much. And God, we realize, Lord, this is a scary time. Lord, we just pray. We know you're sovereign. You're over. And all of a sudden, we're not, not just praying for someone, but praying with someone. Here's one. Take friendship offline. You know, befriending someone on social media is as simple as a click of a button. Pressing like or love can also give the appearance that we're part of our friends' lives. And even if we haven't spoken to them in years... And social media gives a lot of opportunity for this digital connection, but friendship, companionship is suffering today. What if we intentionally sought out even those friends and we tried to find an opportunity to have some coffee with them? What if we found an opportunity to invite them to a meal or to a cookout or or just to take some cookies to these folks or find some way to intentionally build on a relationship where real life friendship and attention is being shown all of a sudden i'm going to tell you what's going to happen to trinity baptist church right here is there's going to be like a great big magnet right here which is going to attract muncie to this fellowship Because friendship is something that's real, not something that's like this deep. You say, well, you know, I don't, I don't know right now. I've got thousands and thousands of friends on Facebook. But I'll tell you, those relationships are about this deep. Take friendship offline. Let's go to that next level. And here's another one, be a cheerleader in someone's life. And that's the idea of, again, listening to a coworker, speaking words of life to them, and speaking words of hope to somebody that's having a difficult time, trying to find ways to build somebody else up, looking around, looking at the opportunities to find ways to encourage people, to interact with them on a daily basis. And what begins to happen as we serve our church, our neighbors, our colleagues, our friends, we're going to be able to reflect the love of Christ. Jesus said in John 15, verse 12, This is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. At the end of World War II, a young boy was living in Paris. He was an orphan. One of the big atrocities of the war was all the orphans that were left. Now he's all alone. He's on the streets, he's scurrying around the ruined city looking to find food, he's looking for clothing, he's looking for shelter, because nearly everyone was experiencing similar desperate times, and he found that people often ignored him, had nothing that they were going to offer to him. Several years prior to this time, the boy had heard someone talk about Jesus. With his present circumstances being so different, he had grown hopeless, having abandoned what little faith he may have had. One wintry morning, a little boy was drifting along the street. He was searching for breakfast, and he rummaged through garbage cans, and he found nothing, and he went a little bit farther, and he began to look into every shop or cafe that he went by. He stopped outside the window of a, of a small bakery, and he pressed his face against the window, and he could smell the fresh bread, and it made his stomach begin to growl with hunger. He was captivated by the aroma of the bread and the sights of the goodies in the bakery and it just looked so warm on this very cold morning. An American soldier pulled up in his jeep and he approached the bakery and he noticed the boy's, you know, fixed gaze upon the bakery. The boy didn't see the soldier at all, but after pausing briefly, the Soldier, the GI, entered the bakery and he began to place his order. And the young boy's eyes grew large as he watched the baker fill the soldier's order. And he loaded a large bag with various kinds of bread and pastries. And he he watched the soldier pay for them. And then he made his way out the door. And the boy started shaking when the soldier walked up to him. The soldier knelt down beside him and he placed the bag in his arms there. And he said, these are yours gave them to that little boy dumbfounded thankful that the lad at first didn't know anything to say and then with a tear in his eye he looked at, up at him he said mister mister are you jesus and the question that that boy asked shouldn't be that strange of a question for us today if we're really identifying with Jesus in our lives, our life should resemble Jesus' life. Our behavior should mimic his behavior. If we've been crucified with Christ and recognize that Jesus lives in us, we're going to go about life as he did. Our lives should be like the gospel incarnate. We ought to see people as Jesus saw people pursuing God's will even as Jesus even as Jesus did verse 15 I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you Father, thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the lesson that we've heard today from these with swollen heads and stinky feet. But Lord, more than that, we're thankful for the lesson that we can learn from Jesus. Help us to have our gaze upon you. Help us not to just have good intentions, but help us to follow through with actions. Help us not to just be willing, but help us to do.